The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sector. Welcome to today's FDF webinar, Labour Shortages, the Role of ESG in Attracting and Retaining Your Workforce. I'm Katrina Aldridge, partner in the CMS employment team, and I have a keen interest and regularly work on many people issues relevant to the food and drink industry. And over the last year, I've been heavily involved in advising on things like pandemic response, including implementation of furlough, hybrid, working arrangements, vaccination issues and management of mental health. And I'm here today talking about the latest buzz acronym ESG. For many, ESG is really a, a green topic with a focus on the E for environment. But if that was my focus today, I should really have rainforests on my cover slides, not rainbow coloured chalk. And I'm not an environmental or energy lawyer, so I can't talk at length about making your organisation greener. Although as a mum, I can talk at length about the pros and cons of paper straws in children's carton drinks. My focus today will be on the S in ESG. S for social, creating sustainable workforces and for the more legal part, how to measure your progress as you strive to do that. And hopefully in doing all of this, I'll enable you to articulate the importance of the S in ESG within the food and drink industry. So thanks very much for joining me today and we'll make a start. So how I'm going to do all of what I've just been talking about today is I'm going to have a look at the context and why I think ESG is so important for the food and drink sector, which is facing extreme labour shortages. I'll then do a refresh on what we mean when we talk about the E, the S and the G. I'll do a deeper dive into the S and what social measures your organisation can take to build a more sustainable workforce. And then I'll look at ways in which you can try and make such an intangible topic more tangible by putting in place clear targets and measuring your organisation's progress against your social objectives. All with a view to enhancing any short-term measures you're already taking to address the labour shortages being faced across the industry. So I don't think it will be news to anyone listening today that currently the food and drink industry is facing unprecedented staff shortages. Of course, the whole premise of today's session is that ESG is part of solving the labour shortage problem. But I do always think it helps to set any possible solution in its proper context. So the August 2021 report establishing the labour availability issues of the UK food and drink sector to which FDF contributed estimated that there were around 500,000 vacancies across the whole food and drink sector with particular pinch points in respect of HGV drivers and hospitality. So that's an average vacancy rate of 13%. As the same report points out, there are a myriad of reasons coinciding to create this crisis. So you have the combination of COVID and Brexit that has seen 1.3 million workers leave the UK. Lockdown has impacted training, which in turn impacts the supply chain of workers. Despite many in the industry carrying out key worker roles during the pandemic, so they were keeping food on shelves, providing takeaways, supplying food to hospital staff, there can still be a perception that roles in the industry are low skilled and low paid and therefore undesirable. And the increased requirement for digital technology and renewable energy knowledge means that there's not always the skilled people available to carry out the roles required. Add to that the changes to IR35 and the introduction of off-payroll working rules in April this year to the private sector, 
which has then seen some move away from the sector due to the impact on their take-home pay. And then there's the rural location of many employers in the industry, which means that the size and flexibility of the labour market can often be restrained. So it's clearly a complex picture, and I'm conscious that many of you will be dealing with a different combination of these factors, and then likely many more. And then we turn to solutions, and of course there's no one-size-fits-all solution. We've certainly seen that many organisations are taking steps to address the immediate problem with quicker fixes of things like pay increases, sign-on bonuses, and measures such as restaurants closing for lunch so as not to put too much pressure on existing staff. And in May 2021, according to the Food Growers and Manufacturers Survey, 44% of respondents intended to increase bonuses, wages and incentives, and that was up from 34% in November 2020. In terms of other potential solutions, any relief from the limitations imposed by the post-Brexit immigration system will also likely help, particularly in areas such as seasonal work and hospitality. And the most recent estimates for how EU workers are represented in sub-sectors of the food and drink industry dates from 2017 and shows a real split of how dependent the sub-sectors were on EU workers at that time. So, for example, 28% of food and drink manufacturing workers were from the EU, 20% of food wholesaling workers, 13% in food and drink services, with 6% in permanent agriculture and 6% in food and drink retail, which is why, for example, the FDF is part of a group campaigning for a 12-month recovery visa. And certainly, when you need people doing the jobs right now just to keep the doors open, these shorter-term solutions are, of course, essential. But the question is, is it enough to attract both the right people and, more importantly, to retain those people and build a sustainable long-term workforce? And as I'm sure you're expecting me to say, my answer to that question would be no. I would say that the evidence points to workers wanting more. So we're talking today about ESG and the link to the E is definitely there. So in a recent IBM survey, 71% of employees said that environmentally sustainable companies are more attractive employers. However, employees are also looking beyond the E and beyond the cash to the culture of their potential employer and the ways they show they value their staff. A couple of examples. In 2018, an EHR survey revealed that nearly two-thirds of women would take um, an organisation's gender pay gap into consideration when applying for jobs. So it's not just an exercise to go through each year publishing your gender pay gap. It's really something that uh, increasing numbers take into account when deciding whether to join your organisation. And a poll of a thousand UK workers conducted by Ernst & Young as part of its 2021 Work Reimagined Employee Survey found that four in five wanted flexibility where they worked and 47% went as far as to say that they would consider changing their jobs if flexible working wasn't an option. So overall, it seems that employees want to work somewhere that is a good place to work. And although an aspect of being a sustainable employer is paying the real living wage and providing other benefits, it's not the only aspect. The main focus is on a, is about how an organisation treats its people, which doesn't cost anything. So good news. And ultimately, it's about making your pitch to employees that you're a great company to work for. And if the upside of prioritising sustainability and values is not enough to convince you or others in your organisation of the importance, there is huge reputational damage in getting it wrong. So poor working cultures can be a breeding ground for issues like whistleblowing, poor health and safety culture and harassment complaints. 
So there are employment law risks and reputational risks that can arise here. And we saw this at the start of the pandemic when, for example, hotel employees in the Highlands were made redundant and told them the same letter to leave their accommodation immediately. There was a real outcry over treating people in that way. And the press has also reported stories this year that there was a toxic culture at a particular drinks company where 70 ex-employees signed their names to an open letter saying that the culture was one of fear. And in response, the company said that they had got some things wrong and were carrying out an investigation to understand why that had happened. And in both stories I've mentioned on the slide, the response was to carry out an investigation. And I think it's just worth noting that the importance of transparency is also key when we're talking about ESG and particularly the S. The make it go away attitude to discovering wrongdoing is for most employers really a thing of the past. And transparency and accountability has definitely led to more issues and new issues being investigated in the workplace. And taking those steps to being transparent is really part of building trust with employees and stakeholders and in turn, hopefully, engendering their loyalty. So I think the scene is set. We have covered the fact of the labour shortage and why it's necessary at the moment for organisations to take steps to attract and retain their workforce. But I am conscious that my title talked about the role of ESG and so far haven't really touched on that. So I would say that this is a good time to pause and reflect on what I'm talking about when I say ESG, given that I am offering that up as part of the solution here. So E is for environment, covering topics such as energy use, pollution, commitment to net zero and waste. S for social, essentially how a business treats its people, customers, stakeholders, and most importantly for today's purposes, its employees which is why ESG is such an attractive proposition in speaking to applicants and workers who have concerns over working in the industry because the S is about sustainable working practices where people feel valued. And G for governance, how an organisation deals with governance issues such as accounting methods, board appointments, bribery and corporate reporting, all of which I would say comes under really the broad heading of sustainability. And when we talk about ESG, we're essentially talking about a set of standards aimed at showing stakeholders how sustainable a company is. Climate change and environmental factors have really been at the forefront of all of these developments. And obviously right now, in the run-up of up to COP26, they're rightly dominating the agenda. But I'm certainly seeing more organisations across a wide range of industries starting to pay more attention to the other pillars because of the pandemic and the massive amount of change we have all faced in our professional and personal lives. And creating and maintaining a sustainable workforce with, with sustainable working practices is a key pillar of this. So having really just run through, the, through those three pillars, and before I um, go on to talk about the S in more detail, um, I thought I would run a quick poll. So let's see if I can get this to work. Basically, I'm interested to know which of the pillars your organisation might be prioritising now. I know I'm talking about the S, but as I say, and there has been a lot of focus certainly on the E. So is your um, organisation prioritising environment, social or governance, all three or none? So I'll just launch that poll now. Hopefully you'll see that on your screen and it would be great if you could just pop an answer in. Interesting at the moment, um, majority all three, which is great to hear. And in fact, 27% um, focusing on the social. 
Okay, so if I go with those responses at the moment, we've got 17% focusing on the environment, which is what I've been certainly seeing with um, a lot of our clients, 25% on social, um, and then 58% on all three. Um, So as I say, I'm focusing on the the social just now and hopefully give you quite a few um, ideas for developing that aspect. Um, But certainly from my point of view, interesting that uh, there's less um, focus on the environment than I was expecting. So I will close that poll. Thank you everyone who answered there. So developing this theme of ESG, ESG and the S is not just for the benefit of future recruits. There are a number of stakeholders within ESG, as you'll be aware. So currently staff, uh, sorry, current staff will also benefit by working in an environment where they do have sustainable careers and opportunities to develop. And we're also hearing about the fact that both businesses and individual customers want to spend their money with organisations where staff are treated well. So I read about, for example, a new Spanish hotel booking app that shows the working conditions of staff, which was launched after Spanish chambermaids got together to complain about pay and working conditions and whether they end up working unpaid overtime because they need to clean a certain quota of rooms in each ship. And although um, investors is at the foot of the list on this particular slide, ESG has grown as an issue because of socially responsible investment decisions. So this is one area where large fund investors are interested in ESG ratings of companies. And I also recognise that this is not a new concept to the industry. In the food manufacturing sector, there's been recognition for years now that there's an important uh, role to play in reducing environmental impact, whether that's around plastic, transport, use of energy, use of water, for example. And what I'm really looking at today is the extension of sustainable manufacturing and production processes into the workforce. And of course, there's a lot of positive work to build on here. So as we saw from our poll, we already have organisations really focusing in on the social and others who are certainly working on it as part of their ESG initiatives. So calling out just a few um, examples of ESG related initiatives um, that I'm aware of. Unilever's Fair Kitchens movement, where chefs supporting chefs, where chefs are supporting chefs to inspire um, a new kitchen culture. Mental health, they've seen a real um, increase in the focus of men- on mental health across all industries um, over the last year. And within hospitality, for example, we're seeing initiatives such as the Burma Chef Project emerging, focusing um, on supporting those with mental health issues in that sector. Another example, the National Pig Association, who's introduced a pig industry professional register to enable people in that industry to demonstrate competence and improve training. So really investing in their people. And it all goes, I suppose it's all sort of supported by a feeling of um, organisations wanting to be a better place to work. A food manufacturer survey from May this year reported that 58% of respondents um, to that survey did want to focus on being a better place to work. But how do you do that? Even for those companies already immersed in social initiatives, there's always more to be done and more ways to engage with applicants and existing staff to try and unlock those labour shortage problems. And for those of you who have not yet done much work in this space, even if you decide to focus in on the S and ESG, it's still a really wide ranging topic and one that's difficult to articulate and one where it's difficult to know where to start. So if you're looking for ideas to improve uh, the S in your ESG, some ideas um, of areas to look at 
are listed on this slide. So we've got taking steps to make your workforce more diverse and your organisation more inclusive. Looking at ways to better engage your workforce and in turn treat them better. Preventing modern slavery within your workforce and your supply chain. Addressing executive remuneration and putting in place ways in which your organisation and workforce can interact with your local community and have social value. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. The SME and ESG, for example, could also extend to human rights. But these are issues that are commonly considered to amount to the social aspect. So I'm just going to run another poll. I'm interested, having seen the areas that your organisations are focusing on, and in light of that survey that I talked about where 58% of respondents um, were focusing on being a better place to work, which of these five areas do you think that your organisation should focus on to make your organisation a better place to work. So I've just used my five examples there. Just launch that poll. Is there one of these five areas that you think your organisation could look at in more detail? So workforce engagement um, coming up top to start with. Okay, so with our results so far, 50% saying their organisation should focus on DNI, 90% workforce engagement, 20% modern slavery, and 20% um, community. So I'm going to look at all of these um, aspects in more detail to uh, explain a bit further about why it's relevant to um, your S initiatives and how you can measure progress and sell what you're doing to potential applicants and your current workforce uh, to um, build um, a sustainable workforce going forwards. I will just close that poll. Thank you very much again. So starting with DNI. The basic premise from a labour shortage point of view is that being able to access and attract a wide range of candidates means that you have a wider range of talent to choose from and the right people applying um, with the right skill sets, the jobs that you need filled. That's not to mention that a failure to have a diverse organisation does bring uh, serious legal and financial risks, including the risk of discrimination claims and reputational risks. Um, that can accompany the publicity associated with that. It's also generally accepted that diverse workforces perform, sorry, workplaces perform better. So groupthink is challenged when diversity of gender, race, and other characteristics are brought together. So the way in which organisations measure how well they're doing in terms of having a diverse workforce and an inclusive workplace is certainly an evolving area, and there's no agreed package of met metrics here. How your organisation measures success in relation to DNI will very much depend on how developed it is um, in its diversity and inclusion strategy, or if you have one at all. But I thought I would run through um, a few ideas that will hopefully supplement what you're doing already. As a starting point, organisations need to ensure that they have policies to support a diverse and inclusive organisation and that the culture matches the words laid out, laid out in those policies, which I, I know isn't always the case. Collection of diversity data is essential for benchmarking, although it can be a challenge to persuade employees to disclose this. One measure you could look at to uh, 
track your progress, certainly in terms of gender equality, um, is to look at your gender pay gap um, as reported through annual gender pay gap reports. And as you might be aware, for example, the deadline for submitting gender pay gap reports has just passed at the beginning of October, having been extended um, since April this year for COVID. And I just had a quick look at a benchmarking app that I use, and I saw that the agriculture, forestry and fishing sector um, had reduced their mean pay gap to 8.1 this year, down from 11.7 the year before. So that's a good news story. And if your organisation has a similar good news gender pay gap story, it's one that you can sell to applicants and current employees uh, about what your um, how inclusive your workforce is. And as I mentioned before, there's a large number of people who are interested in what your gender pay gap is before they apply to your organisation. So it's one you can sell on your website to have your gender pay gap report easily accessible. Sticking on the gender equality theme, uh, another potential measure is showing any increase of the number of women that you have on your board. So for example, FTSE 350 boards should by now have achieved the 33% female board member target. You could also use the target set by the Parker Review related to ethnicity at board level, whereby there should be one ethnic minority board member by 2021. Other measurements include whether you have employee networks in place. I think this is a really interesting one. I was sitting on a construction or a panel for a construction sector webinar recently where we were looking at DNI. And I know it's an altogether different industry, but an interesting one because their diversity statistics are really low. Um, and so there's a lot of work there um, in terms of improving diversity. And that panel were really saying that they saw real value in. Um, having employee networks and increasing the number of employee networks because it's a really it's a ground up approach and you can get really good traction with employees in terms of being inclusive you can have one network you can have many at cms for example we have 11. another thing to think about is awards so maybe you want to publicize that you're on stonewall's workplace equality index or then sign up to commitments like the Race at Work Charter or the 30% Club, uh, which is prioritising um, increased numbers um, of female representation at board and um, senior management level. And you can then chart and describe and publicise any progress made against action plans in this regard. We're also seeing companies move towards voluntary reporting of their ethnicity pay gap as it becomes more and more likely that that will become mandatory. And there's also an expectation that pay gap reporting will move into other protected characteristics, including disability. So if you can make a, a start in collecting that sort of data, it shows you're being proactive and in fact you're ahead of the curve in terms of what's likely to become mandatory in any event. And social mobility is becoming more important as organisations take active steps in this area, with many collecting data in their diversity monitoring forums about employee background and schooling and setting targets for recruitment. So then workforce engagement, and I know this is one that um, a lot of you are very interested in. So when I'm talking about workforce engagement, I'm talking about things like looking at how people are essentially treated at work, their health and safety, and how much your organisation engages with their employees about decisions that affect them. And the aim here is really about valuing people and understanding that, that people are central to the success of your organisation. 
It results in retaining talent, productivity, creativity, good mental health, as well as facilitating good decision-making and enabling people to speak out when they see wrongdoing, all of which comes back to sustainability. So creating good working conditions includes things like making sure people are paid in excess of the minimum wage. They're given additional benefits such as enhanced sick pay and supported with their mental and physical health. And we're seeing more and more employers invest in mental wellbeing programmes to proactively support staff in the workplace and devise leave policies that take into account caring responsibilities and a personal life beyond the workplace. Workforce engagement does cover a wide area and extends, for example, to having effective data protection policies so that staff are confident their data and privacy are protected in the workplace and their data is, trans, um, is processed transparently and securely. And I'd say that there are a variety of ways of measuring um, how well your organisation is doing in terms of engaging with your workforce. So you can get feedback from and consult with staff on what they think you're doing well and not so well. And I'd say this is really critical. You could do that, for example, through an established employee forum or through trade unions, or maybe you start an employee forum, or do you use technology to engage with all of your employees directly? Employee satisfaction surveys can also be a useful tool and are often cited in annual reports, for example, as an index of how engaged employees feel within an organisation. I've highlighted on this slide the point about how a company manages organisational change, particularly in relation to where we are now over the last year and a half. Organisations might also want to make a statement to explain whether they use zero hours contracts or how they hire casual or atypical staff to mitigate against concerns that vulnerable workers are exploited. And there are various external standards that organisations can meet, such as the Mindful Business Charter and the Scottish Responsible Business Charter. And I think quite a good example of where just a small measure can be really effective is in relation to the Mindful Business Charter, where CMS, where I work, has signed up. And one of the things that I have really appreciated is the email etiquette that has come off the back of that. So we're encouraged to think about when do we send an email? Don't send it late at night. Um, so that others feel that they need to respond at that time. What do you put in the header to make it clear maybe when you, when you would like a response um, or so someone knows immediately what it's about? Um, and certain etiquette around communicating in an urgent fashion only when absolutely necessary. Uh, and, and so I suppose that's really just an example of how quite small steps can really make a difference to employees feeling engaged um, and appreciating the culture and values of their organisation. I also took up, talked about steps, taking steps to prevent modern slavery within your workforce and supply chain. Modern slavery is the illegal exploitation of people for personal or commercial gain. And as well as specific offences relating to slavery, servitude, forced and compulsory labour and human trafficking, the Modern Slavery Act 2015 places an obligation on certain organisations to publish an annual modern slavery statement, setting out the steps that the organisation has taken to ensure that modern slavery and human trafficking is not taking place in its business and supply chains. The obligation is not limited in geographical scope and applies to any organisation carrying on all or part of its business in the UK, whether UK registered or not. So both organisations that are required to publish a modern slavery statement and those that aren't, should carry out due diligence into their business and supply chains in relation to such issues and put in place measures to pre prevent, identify and remediate such exploitation. 
Investors just don't want to be associated or seem to be profiting from companies that derive high margins through poor working conditions or exploitation of workers or condone such behaviours in their supply chain. And you'll all be aware of press stories, particularly involving um, clothes manufacturers and poor working practices. And many are now choosing to invest, do business or associate themselves with organisations which treat these issues as a matter of priority. The contents of an organisation's modern slavery statement which an organisation is required to publish on its website is one clear area in which its commitment to this issue can be measured. However, even for organisations that are not required to publish a statement, the approach they take, as reflected, for example, in their staffing policies, code of conduct, terms of business, can give an insight into their stance on the issue. The government has opened a central modern slavery statement register where organisations can make their modern slavery statements available for public review as well as publishing them on their own website. Currently, publishing on the central register is voluntary, but it will become mandatory and will be used by the Home Office to measure compliance. And plans are also in place to strengthen the law in this area to mandate the contents of modern slavery statements, introduce a single reporting date for all organisations and introduce harsher penalties for organisations that do not comply, even without harsher penalties Organisations that are exposed as being involved in modern slavery face significant reputational damage, which can have wider repercussions on their brand, share value and investment potential. My fourth strand is executive remuneration. And executive pay forms part of both the social and governance aspects of ESG. So the social aspect requires looking at what society expects companies to do about executive pay and what is and what is not acceptable behaviour. And shareholders are looking at executive pay in relation to the gap between workers and executives and the overall financial performance of the company. With the pandemic, there has been an expectation that all involved should share the pain across the workplace hierarchy. And although the UK furlough scheme didn't prohibit bonus payments to senior staff as a condition of payment, on the whole, it wasn't really seen as acceptable for companies to take public money, pay their staff 80% of the wages and then pay their executives large bonuses. Of course, some companies did do that, but it then often resulted in negative publicity. And there's also the question of whether, and if so, to what extent, ESG metrics, so maybe covering diversity, health and safety, environment, should be applied to executive incentives. On the face of it, I would say it seems like a good idea and it has been adopted by many companies. But then there's also some debate about whether those types of metrics are necessary or even effective, particularly given that ESG objectives will often be aligned with existing metrics. Um, and also ESG metrics are fairly new and as such, universally understood standards have not yet emerged, so there can be difficulties there. In their annual reports, all premium listed companies in the UK must comply or explain when it comes to the principles of the UK Corporate Governance Code and many other companies comply with the code on a voluntary basis. One of the code's principles is that remuneration policies and practices should be designed to support strategy and promote long-term sustainable success. Executive remuneration should be aligned to company purposes and values and be clearly linked to the successful delivery of the company's long-term strategy. Quoted companies are required to publish an annual remuneration report setting out actual payments to directors and details on the link between company performance and CEO pay. And this report must also state how the company intends to implement its remuneration policy in the current financial year. 
and that report is subject to an advisory vote. And lastly, many companies are required to issue a statement relating to Section 172 of the Companies Act 2006. And that section imposes the well-known duty to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole, whilst having regard for stakeholder groups such as employees, customers, suppliers, and the wider environment. And the Section 172 statement needs to explain at a fairly high level how decisions were taken. And this could, for example, for remuneration issues. And finally, turning to community engagement. And this can include things like employee employee volunteering in your local community, uh, supporting charitable organisations through fundraising and in-kind support, supporting young people to develop skills essential for the world of work, advancing social mobility and engagement in sustainable activities, um, all of which lessen impact on the environment. Of course, businesses don't uh, exist in isolation. And the pandemic has very much emphasised that employees do want to work in organisations that are socially responsible and have a broader purpose. So studies have shown that social, uh, sorry, positive social impact equates to higher job satisfaction. So organisations that look at long-term skills, employability, will benefit by working with schools and universities through mentoring and outreach programmes. So it's about long-term investment in creating opportunities. I recently spoke at a session with James Barr of Wesley Hotels, which is the first hotel in the UK to receive the social enterprise mark and, and, and focuses on sustainable hotel operations. And he was really just talking about how much benefit staff were getting from engaging with the local community through a number of initiatives that were running. And he was certainly very positive about the impact of that. In terms of measurement, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals contains a list of 17 different goals that apply across all areas of ESG and are a framework for doing good. And I would certainly encourage you to take a look at those if you're looking to develop this aspect um, of your ESG agenda. So really now trying to pull all of these strands together. I have added onto this slide um, a screenshot from the FDF report outlining what organisations are doing to tackle the labour crisis. So you'll see there's really quite a number of different things going on here. And what my message today is really that I would be encouraging you to look beyond the first column, so looking beyond increased wages or social media campaigns, really to the second column um, of things like flexible shift patterns, apprenticeships and increased permanent roles. And then even beyond that to the longer term DNI initiatives to uh, reviewing your modern slavery statements um, and to increased uh, workforce engagement. So really, as I come to the end of the session today, I'm hoping that I have equipped you with the why behind why this is so important and lots of ideas for how you can take your ESG agenda forward in the people space. Where you start with this really depends on how you have, or on how developed your S measures already are. For many large, large organisations, they will be, you will be fairly far down this journey. And for others, you might be just beginning to look at it just now. But really to finish, I just wanted to give you three uh, simple first steps. So what I would suggest would be to carry out a staff survey so you can understand from staff, staff what is working now and where they would like to see change. You might have done this before, but is it worth refreshing? Then identify priority areas where working conditions can be improved. Is it work patterns, better benefits, 
putting in place employee networks so that everyone feels represented. And that might go to the workforce engagement piece that um, a lot of you said that you uh, would like to focus on. And then lastly, make sure you communicate the importance that your organisation places on people and purpose alongside profit so that you can then foster the long-term culture of trust and build and retain the sustainable workforce that you are aspiring to. Which really brings me to the end of my content for today. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sector.